Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Carter Center. Uh, my name is Tom Crick. I'm with the, uh, the Carter Center's Conflict Resolution Program, uh, and I'm delighted to uh, be the MC for the uh, early rounds of a discussion on the role of the media in the Liberian uh, Civil War. Um, this is a very uh, special uh, discussion. Not only is it uh, valuable in and of itself, but it is linked to the ongoing truth and reconciliation uh, process in Liberia. We're very honored this evening to have with us Commissioner Massa Washington, who is a commissioner with the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And she has very kindly agreed to come here uh, because as the, chair, the um, chairman of the uh, subcommittee on the media of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, this meeting is of particular interest to her and the work of the commission. She'll be joining the panelists on stage uh, later. Um, the Carter Center has uh, itself been working uh, with the Commission uh, in small part and continues to work uh, in Liberia with the Ministry of Justice, uh, helping to uh, implement the, uh, the rule of law there. Uh, but this evening we're going to uh, look back more at the role of the media, the role the media played uh, during the Civil War. Uh, I wanted to um, particularly recognize uh, a number of people and organizations uh, who have made this possible this evening. Uh, the Sutherland uh, Law Firm, who are working with uh, Advocates for Human Rights in Minnesota, who are a partner of the TRC. They have helped uh, to put this um, uh, evening's events on and have done a lot of work uh, to research the role of the media during the Civil War, which they provided uh, to the advocates uh, for use by the, uh, the TRC. They are one of our co-sponsors uh, this evening, and I particularly thank them. Um, the Emory's Institute for Developing Nations is also a supporter, uh, and I'd like to recognize a uh, significant group here this evening from a conference that's being held on the role of gender violence and the law here at the Carter Center and Emory, uh, particularly the Honorable uh, Deputy Minister of Gender, uh, for research, um, Annette uh, Kiwu, and representatives of the uh, Traditional Council uh, of Liberia. Also supporting this event are the uh, Atlanta Friends of the Liberian uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, we'd like to particularly uh, recognize the Allstate Foundation for their generous support of the work of the ATL-TRC through the, uh, the STAR um, organization here in uh, Atlanta. Um, there are many uh, partner groups in the ATL-TRC working to support the TRC's work in the diaspora. I see uh, representatives from uh, Georgia Tech here this evening, uh, Emory's Institute for uh, Religion, Conflict and Peacebuilding, uh, also from the Liberian Association of Metro Atlanta, LAMA, and their president, Walter Skinner, is here this evening. 
um, all of whom have been collaborating over the last year to try to make the work of the TRC a success, both in the diaspora and overseas. Um, I'd like finally to recognize uh, the multimedia uh, presentation that you've been able to see outside and here before. Uh, we're very honored to have with us two of Liberia's uh, top uh, photographers over the years. Uh, Mr. Gre Gregory Stem, who is uh, taking photographs as is his uh, vocation. Um, uh, he is, uh, took the pictures that you saw displayed outside. Uh, Mr. Peewee Flamoko, one of our panelists this evening, is responsible for many of the images that we saw earlier this evening. And also particular thanks to William Burke, one of our panelists, a producer with CNN International, for arranging the uh, CNN uh, montage that was uh, looping outside. Um, so without uh, further ado and with apologies to um, any of uh, people in the audience I may have forgotten who have helped to put this evening together, and also with particular thanks to uh, Atundi Kokoma uh, of the Atlanta TRC and of the Carter Center, uh, who has really worked very, very hard to put this together. Let me briefly introduce the panelists uh, and let the, uh, let the show begin. Uh, our chair this evening is Aisha Sese, who is the um, uh, presenter of Inside Africa and also one of the presenters of CNN's uh, uh, World News. Uh, we're particularly happy to have her here this evening. Uh, we have William Burke, who is uh, a producer with CNN International. Peewee Flamoko, a former Associated Press photojournalist and now a Carter Center staff member in Liberia. Saya Nyansor, who is the publisher and co-founder of the US-based Perspective website. Um, and as I mentioned before, Commissioner Massa Washington will be observing uh, proceedings and joining the panel. Finally, Matthew Big uh, of Reuters uh, Atlanta Bureau Chief currently. He was also a West Africa correspondent uh, for Reuters uh, during the Liberian Civil War. So I thank all the panelists, I thank all in the audience, and I look forward to a very interesting uh, discussion and look forward to your input following the panel discussion. Thank you all very much. Good evening, everyone. I'd like to thank you personally for joining us here this evening for this panel discussion on how the media covered the Liberian Civil War. This is going to be an informal affair. We'll be on first name terms here. And um, we're really going to try and have a conversation. This is going to be one of those evenings where there's a free and frank exchange of opinions and ideas. And after we have spoken for about 45 minutes up here, we'll open up the floor for questions. We'll talk a little bit more about that later and how that will work. But for now, let's, um, let's get on with the show. You're here to hear our fantastic panel that we have assembled. Tom has already introduced them, so I'm going to get the, the conversation started. And I'm going to start with Peewee there at the end. Uh, Peewee, what was it like to work as a journalist in Liberia during the Civil War? Well, it was tough and it was uh, challenging being a Liberian and working in a war zone, it was really difficult. You, you had to make 
uh, tough decisions as to how you go about doing your work because uh, there were a lot of factors that affected local journalists. One was because we live there, we live in the terrain, and our interaction with other of the parties, depending on where you were, kind of put a dark cloud on how you went about doing your work. Even if you just wanted to do a piece of work to get the information up, and especially for us uh, photographers, the, the, the problem we had was getting the story out through the pictures, the images. You have to go to the scene. Say, for example, if there was news of fighting somewhere, you had to go to the scene to be able to get the, the, the image from there and bring that image. And how you got to that scene and to be able to get the image was totally a challenging one. Whereas if you were a reporter, you could get on the scene too, but you could stand somewhere and talk to about five or six persons. And if you think the, the stories they're giving you, you can collaborate them, you'll be able to read a story. But it was a challenge for us because one, I saw that staying in Morovia or going out of Morovia and getting story was uh, a way that I could help in my little ways to be able to put up the the, the images up there to be able to send messages out to the international community so that Liberia could get help, so that those people that were behind the lines or in the bushes who didn't have any means of getting rescued uh, and they were caught up between the fighting forces, people would know that they were there. And had that went on was a challenge for me, but at least we fought to do it. And many of my colleagues uh, had problems with the, the faction but we fought it one way or the other. And Bill, who's a producer with CNN International, you hear Pee Wee there ex uh, describing the, the physical constraints and the dangers. How does it compare? What was the experience for you as a journalist working for an international news organization like CNN International and covering the story? Well, I think as um, international journalists um, going into any war zone for that matter. I think um, there are restrictions, there are limitations, of course. But um, for the most part, a lot of uh, international journalists going in rely heavily on people like Pee and people like um, some of the other local journalists because you don't know your way around the terrain. You um, are not as close to the story as the local reporters. So, of course, you have to depend on these people to be fixers, et cetera. And one of the things that I, I found out, um, for example, I worked in Liberia for about a year and some months after the war started in 1989. I finally left Liberia in March of, of 1991. Um, the restrictions were so many. Imagine being told that if you report that um, the rebels are present anywhere in the country, that you will be told to take government officials to where the rebels are and you have to prove that rebels are there. So um, the question is, how do you do your work? How do you tell the story? There's so, many, so much information that you have. To, and you're hoping that the international community, that the Liberian people would know, uh, the, will be given the information that you have, but because of your limitations, you can't do it. So that's why a lot of international journalists coming in 
find the willingness on the part of the local journalists because these journalists want to get the story out. And they believe that if they cannot get the story out in the local newspapers, et cetera, et cetera, they should open you know, their arms to people like Matt Bick or other <coughs> international journalists that are coming in. To bring in Matt, at, at that point, you hear Bill say that it comes down to using the, the people on the ground to get their stories out. You were with Reuters uh, at the time covering the story. How did you approach it? What were your experiences? Did you have to make those same kinds of relationships? Uh, to an extent, absolutely. And um, in the wars that I covered in Africa, um, I had immense respect for journalists who lived and stayed and were always there, um, such as Pee Wee. Um, because, yes, there are, there are particular pressures in, in, in coming into a situation fresh and particular advantages, too, in terms of having a fresh pair of eyes, for example. Um, but it is very difficult to stay. And um, so, you know, I have immense respect for, for, for journalists who stay in a given country and also for the passion which they um, feel and the commitment which leads them to take risks when oftentimes I think journalists who are from countries such as Liberia are actually more vulnerable um, because governments are even less respectful of them than they are of international journalists. Sai, to bring you in at this point, Sai is, uh, as Tom said earlier, is the co-founder and editor of The Perspective, which is uh, a, a newspaper in the diaspora. As a Liberian covering the, the conflict, uh, what did you see as the role of, of, of your publication? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we, were, we were placed in a very privileged position for the fact that uh, we were now on the ground. And secondly, since being here since 1968 and advocating as a student activist, uh, most of the, the players in Liberia during the Civil War were individuals that uh, we uh, socialized with, we fraternalized with, and so forth. Uh, we felt that uh, they betrayed the covenant that we established because when we used to demonstrate against the Tobal regime, we wanted fundamental change to introduce uh, democracy for the people to be elected and so forth. So when this happened, and our friends were doing the same thing for which we demonstrated against, uh, we were in conversation with some of them that uh, we were no more students uh, and that we knew how to get to them. So there were brothers in, uh, in Liberia who could not publish in Liberia because of the same thing that uh, this gentleman have just mentioned because they were restricted. So there we go to other articles or some places and, and just send us information. And then we would take the, uh, the liberty to publish those information and uh, inform the international uh, public as to what is actually going on. And we had credible sources on the ground uh, that was sending us information. And what we did, too, was to also confuse them because they would go to cabinet meetings and once they, whatever decision they, they took, we would get the information and publish it in our paper and say, uh, if it was in the executive mansion, we would say, 
our executive mansion correspondent. So were you trying to undermine the system from within? So you were relying on informants as opposed to the situation that Peewee describes and international journalists relying on people on the ground. You were working from within to bring down. Is that what you were trying exactly, to do? Exactly. That's exactly what we, we intended to do. And that's what we did. That's interesting because um, from where I'm coming from as, as, a, as a journalist for Reuters, the idea of trying to undermine the system is, is um, anathema. The passion that drove me um, is very much to try to report accurately for its own sake and so that the world will know really what's going on. So, and that's just a difference, and I think that all media have different perspectives, but for us it was very much um, you know, not having a particular political agenda and neutrality and balance were you know, fundamental touchstones. Maybe it's important to distinguish uh, the perspective from Reuters or CNN. Um, the perspective, a lot of us in the diaspora are dependent on perspective during the reign of Charles Stiller and during, during the war uh, because um, the perspective informed us of what was happening in Liberia. In the meantime, um, it also served as a powerful tool that was exposing some of the abuses that were happening on the ground in Monrovia. So there were some people who will classify the perspective as an anti-government newspaper at that particular time. So I think it's safe to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the perspective was an online newspaper with an agenda. That's definitely. And you never made any secret of that, I think oh, it's quite didn't. clear. To, just to keep things moving on, because we will come back to the issue of impartiality and independence and, and, and issues like that, principles of journalism, we'll come back to that later on in the conversation. But to go back to Peewee, given that covering the story in Liberia was fraught with such dangers, it makes me wonder what stories were able to get out, and just as importantly, what stories couldn't be told? Quitting? Yeah, what stories were you unable to tell because of the constraints? What stories dominated the coverage? Well, uh, they have human suffering, but the stories that massacres were hard to tell. For example, you, you, you didn't have access to where they took place, and if you wanted to put, it, they put the story out on time, you were denied. There were instances where the government troop uh, took the journalists to places that the alleged massacre took place by the rebel. They claimed the rebel carried on massacre. And then they would say they would take us there to go and see. And there were one or two instances and on our way, there was uh, ambush on the way because they were actually not in control. They were driven from the area. And then when they claimed that they were there, and on our way there, there was ambush on the road. And so two of the guys got hit by the rebels. And, and then they reacted on the journalists. They said we, we were passing information to the rebel that we, they were coming. How is that possible? You gather us at the mansion and say, we're taking all of you there. You put us in one truck, and we are riding with your, we are not driving our own cars. We are riding with the government people to go to the scene. We didn't race to the scene, and something happened with the advanced thing ahead of us and they blame us. So those sort of stories were hard to put up. There were times that the, the government went the, to the extent of going to the printing press. And it was like, like us uh, uh, putting sunshine on the press, that you cannot publish this story. They wanted to see the headlines. The Ministry of uh, Information had to, to, to go through every headline and, and certify it before it would go out. There were times they went to the, the photo studio 
for those that were printing. Uh, some of us were lucky because when I started with the, the AP, I, I got equipment that I could farm my pictures from on the field. So I didn't have to come to town or I didn't have to go to the public place to be able to, to farm my pictures so that I, I get my pictures and I can stay in my car and, and use my, my cell phone and transmit my pictures. But that was only me. For the locals, they could not publish anything. There was nothing working. All the uh, printing houses were down. People were not being going out. So to put out the news, if, if it had to do with government atrocity, and it depends where you were covering. If you were across the, the, the rebel line, I don't know how they did it there because I, I didn't go there. But on the government side, it was very difficult to pull out those kind of stories. But to Bill and, and to Matt, uh, Pee Wee mentions the issue of massacres and the, when it came down to an issue of a large loss of life, it was hard to get that kind of stuff out because you couldn't gain access to the locations. Did the international media get the story? Did they get it when they, they, they put it out there, at least in the early days, in the sense that did, was there a tendency for it to just seem as if there go another bunch of black people killing other black people? Well, I think to an extent, um, yes, because I think, yes, that there was a tendency, you know, to say, there go, there go the Africans again, um, because you have to accept that um, in the late 90s and, and early two, part of the 2000, um, there was a general fatigue with uh, repetitive conflicts across Africa. So, yes, there was that maybe tendency for people to say, there go bunch of Africans killing each other again, but um, these massacres that we hear about, like um, some of the, you know, like in Harbel, et cetera, et cetera, that, we, that we've heard about, um, there were no, I would say, extensive reporting internationally on these massacres. What happened, you would have heard maybe on the BBC or maybe on CNN about the massacre, and then the question remained as to who committed these massacres, you know, and um, People were not able to prove as to whether they were committed by the government troops, by the rebels, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what happened later on, for example, in our own case, during the years that we uh, worked on Inside Africa, uh, especially during the last war, 2003, we made an effort to begin to tell the, the stories of you know, individual, individuals in the country who uh, let me put it another way. We, we, we decided to focus on the suffering of the people. You know, while people were debating in places like Abidjan, in places like Washington, as to what to do about the fighter in Liberia, you have people dying every day in the country as the rebels continued to launch Greater Monrovia and other areas. So the question was, how do you tell this story? You know? And we made an effort to say to our correspondents on the ground that do not just tell the story of people fleeing. You have to tell the human story. Find people. Let them tell you of, how, of what they're going through, how they are living in Monrovia. Let's show the world how the people are living and how the people are suffering. Matt? Um, I, I um, had the privilege of covering conflicts in, across Africa, really, in, in Rwanda and Burundi and Zaire and Sierra Leone and Ivory Coast and Liberia and was driven really 24-7 by a motivation to get it right and to get the politics right and to report as much as we knew and not to exceed the boundaries of what we did know. Um, so because I work for international media or because we are an international media, that never uh, resulted in, in, in a kind of dumbing down. 
which I think would be the greatest insult. Um, I think, you know, truth is its own reward and trying to figure out what happened and, and get it out there is hugely important. What I would say, though, is um, one of the constraints for, for an international news organization is what you can show. I remember um, in 2002 getting some um, TV footage from um, our TV correspondent in Liberia, a Liberian, which was so graphic and unpleasant that it was unwatchable. Did it reflect a reality, not the only, but a reality of the war? Absolutely, unquestionably. Was it something for consumption by a television audience? Inconceivable. So those are perhaps some of the um, you know, uh, dilemmas that you face. But in terms of trying to get it right, no, absolutely, that was a huge priority. Among the principles of journalism are you know, issues of impartiality and independence. We know that in the case of The Perspective, an online newspaper that clearly, as the editor and co-founder says, had its agenda. We know that was the case there. Give me a sense, and I'm throwing this out to, any, to all of you, how widespread was that in terms of domestic media in Liberia during the conflict for it to split down along factional ethnic lines? But uh, <clears throat> we were not that exempt. Uh, like, for instance, uh, when we were publishing here, they aligned us with second groups on the ground. Uh, from time immemorial, I have always been a movement of justice in Africa that later on became. LPP, Liberian People's Party. The three founders of, uh, of the pers perspective, uh, Abraham Wayne was always uh, PPP. He was from a different party. Uh, and then uh, George Nubo, he also was from uh, uh, LPP. Uh, when we published the information, they said that we had a hidden agenda that uh, we're out of. It was, uh, but didn't you have an agenda? When, when I say hidden agenda, the, the hidden agenda that they were, they were return, uh, referring to is different from our agenda. It was not a partisan agenda. There's a difference between that. It was not partisan agenda. They would accuse us of Moja, uh, is Moja newspaper or PPP newspaper. And later on, you'll be surprised to say that Ellie. The current president was the one that was bankrolling us. So we have all of these things, and well, then you have other people who were supporting Taylor. Was, was supporting Taylor. There was an online uh, uh, website called All About Africa. And these were paid journalists that would accuse us. They don't know, they don't know much about us, all they would say. Oh, Sarnias here is in the United States. He was one of those guys who was just working. Uh, in a hospital doing nothing, he came to go to school, he doesn't have a degree, and, and they will publish all of these things. So what we did, we never paid attention to them. We continue to press on, press on. As we begin to do that, CNN, BBC, the Financial Times will, uh, will call us and cross-check the information that we have because they usually, they, some of them use our information, and that's how we became credible. Pee-wee, to bring you in there, when you find yourself, you remained in Liberia throughout the conflict, but when you find yourself working in an environment where your colleagues are taking sides, where does that leave you? Well, it, it, it was also difficult in that sense because uh, they perceive everybody of taking sides. So if, if you were not reporting 
uh, stories that the government wanted, it meant that you were aligned with the rebels. And if you were putting out something that, that was just all together and not in favor of the rebel, it meant that you were with the government. People took uh, interest and in, side depending on where they were and, and, and what story they were working on. Because some journalists, local journalists, were personally affected by the war, by the crisis. Some of them lost their, their whole family. So they, and they went into reporting. So to, to judge from what point this person is going to be factual, it's going to cross-check your report, it's going to say you got 10,000 persons coming from across the bridge, they, and they, they, were, they, were, they were being chased out of the place by SYZ faction. So to cross-check that, what that they were putting themselves into the, the reportage to put up something. I mean, it was a challenge, but people blame everybody. We all blame other people. Like, look, this, what you're seeing is not right because we were there. We know our reporters that stay in Moravia and interview people in Moravia and, and fire in report and say they reported from outside of Moravia. That wasn't true because we know that we all were there. So, so you raise a, a good point, and as Sly touched on it, you raise the issue of accuracy and, and how that line of accuracy and truth becomes blurred when people have their own agendas and people have had their own experiences. So, Bill, how does that affect an international organization that's far away from the story that has to rely on people on the ground who are feeding you information from their own perspective, with their own agenda? Well, what happens to you then? Well, firstly, let's talk a little bit about um, journalists taking sides in, in a conflict like Liberia's. Um, the journalists are part and parcel of the society. So obviously, like people said, they, will, um, they are impacted by what goes on in, in the society. At a very early stage in the Liberian conflict, the press was split into two. And at the, at, at the beginning, it was not by choice. You either got caught up on the Taylor side, and so you, um, you, know, you became a part of the Taylor press, or you got caught up on the interim government side, you became a part of the interim government press. At a very early stage, at a very early point, you saw people, um, especially because I was in a Taylor camp, so let me speak of that, you saw people in that camp who saw this as an opportunity to advance themselves politically. And so because of that, they began to protect the interests of the, the Taylor territory. So it became a battle between the Moravia-based journalists and the Banga-based journalists. And, and in as much as I, for one, had a high degree of respect for the Moravia-based journalists, I would say more than I had for some, some of those on the Taylor side, uh, I refused to believe that what they did in Monrovia too was not impacted by the fact that they wanted to protect the interests of the people and the government in Monrovia. Mm -hmm. So it happened on both sides, and there, there's a school of thought that say, says because these journalists took sides, to some extent it may have helped to prolong the war because you didn't have an objective observer. So let's talk about an international journalist um, wanting to be on the ground. For example, during the war, uh, I mean during the election, some of the people, we, or, or, or before the election, when, when Lerd was knocking on the doors of Monrovia, some of the people we got in touch with to, number one, feed us information, to number two, to help, you know, ferry our correspondent around Liberia. We got a couple of names, and we knew that these people at one point in time, 
served the interests of NPFL or served the interests of the interim government or served the interests of the INPFL. And in that case, what can you do? You say you alert the correspondent on the ground that, look, beware of this guy. Now these this, people were either with yes. Taylor or yes. with Prince Johnson, the break And then you can, trust, you can trust your correspondent to make the decision, to make the decision to know what information to accept for, from this person, to know, um, you know how to deal with this person. It's difficult because you have to deal with people on the ground. And it's almost impossible to find anyone who will not be um, affected by the conflict in one way or another, uh, sympathize or empathize with one group or the other. Matt, you interviewed Charles Taylor. And uh, I'm intrigued by your impressions of the man himself that was very charming and charismatic out to, you know, that was the face he gave the world, but we know that he unleashed chaos and destruction in Liberia. Two questions. Your impressions and or your impressions of the man, and did the international media, the media at large, let him off the hook? Did they get it? Did they get the story wrong there? Um, yes, very charming, very charismatic, very on message, which is a kind of an American phrase. But one always felt with Taylor that the point he got across was the point he figured out in advance that he wanted to get across on any given occasion. I often felt with with um, Charles Taylor, that he was playing a very weak hand because he had very little credibility because of the things that his forces had done. But he always played it to the absolute maximum. Um, and that was very impressive from a purely kind of cynically political point of view. Um, I also interviewed, and this is, I think, a relevant point of comparison, I also interviewed um, Fodysenko in Sierra Leone. And this, the contrast between the two men was, was very striking. Ferdisanko, one felt, was very much aware at some psychic level of the things that the IUF had done. You um, mean a conscience? Yeah, um, I remember asking him, you know, what do you think about the idea that there needs to be justice at the end of this conflict? And he said, why should I be a dog to return to my own vomit? Um, you never got that kind of language from Charles Taylor. He was always polished, crisp, very professional. You could imagine him as a, as a business executive in some large company in the States. Was that um, convincing? Um, was it something which swayed one's opinion of him? I think, you know, the, the important thing always in journalism is to interview the president and interview the person who's suffering the consequences of the president. And you try to hold those two things in balance. Peewee, um, you have photos that are uh, on display here this evening and one of the striking images that I saw was the one with the piles of the, 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 the pile of bodies. I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about the situation that, that led to that scene um, and follow up by giving us a sense of what was going through your mind as you took that picture. Um, that picture was one of two moments that I really thought I could not carry my camera anymore. I walked up uh, Benson Street up to the U.S. Embassy because I heard people running and, and yelling. And this was the 2003, somewhere between June and July. The shares were landing. So I walked up this road and saw people running, so I ran because that was the kind of thing we were involved in. You see people running and you run after them. You want to see where they're running to. 
Should I run to the, the embassy and I saw people going to the grace tomb? Is this compound used for, for staff of the embassy? It's a big compound. And this place, just because it is close to the embassy itself, was used during the 1990 as a safe haven for, for, for people in Morovia. They all just moved there, including myself, just like we'll be close to the U.S. embassy, thinking that nothing will happen. But I think more people got killed in that uh, open, because it's an open place. There's nothing there protecting you. It's just open. But people just felt secure because it was very close to the U.S. embassy. So I, I walked to the gate, and there are thousands of women and children. And all you could see were children in the air, people holding their children in the air to enter the compound. But the security guys were ordered to keep the gate closed. They didn't want people entering there. So they had strict order to keep the gate closed. So they were not allowing people in the gate. And, and because the crowd was so huge and, and pushing on the gate, so they decided to use their tear gas to push the people away from there. And, and, but the people kept pressing on. So that was at the back, taking shot of people getting in, and people kept coming. And then it, it came to the point where they overpowered the security. And this is the iron gate I'm talking about. And they pushed the gate open. And they all rushed inside. And it was just, I don't know. As the first set of people ran into the gate, the shell landed into the compound on the rack. And all of those that entered first, they all died instantly. Because the the shaft and it landed about three or four times. They were landing on the rocks, and the particles were just going like this and tearing people apart, children. And, And because of that, the crowd got so angry that in the first place they were stopped from entering there. So they decided to take their bodies out and they said we cannot, we cannot take this anymore. If the U.S. Uh, cannot come in to help, then they should tell us, but we would prefer to die in front of the embassy. We will let the war know. So I was one of the first camera pressing there and I started calling some of my guys to come around. And so that's how we took the picture and it was, it was a sad moment because we, we have the uh, U.S. Marine in the compound. And they came outside to protect the person, uh, the chief of mission, as they call it. He came outside later on because the women said they wanted to see the, uh, the person in charge and they were like banging on the, on the wall. So this person came outside and they had Marines with, uh, with guns to protect this woman to come outside. And, and so it, it began to change in that area at that time. And so they were just bringing bodies and bodies and bodies and bodies and putting it there. And so I took the shot and I ran up to, to go and fire. Unfortunately for me, my battery ran down. I couldn't fire from, from my cell phone. So I ran to the mama point and used the, uh, the, the trial. So I'm firing... Uh, 500 something megabyte picture on a trial. I was taking like two hours plus to go through. And that was the first set of images that went out on that incident to the CNN. In like a couple of hours, it was on the CNN. And the next day, it's like you open a frog gate and there were a pool of journalists and people coming. So the intent of that picture on that time is self the purpose, like it sent a message out to what was happening. And after that day, there were a lot of things that changed. You, you put the photo out and the ripple effect led to more people seeing it and it getting to CNN and ultimately 
a path to change. But I wonder whether at any point you thought to yourself, this is just too gruesome to put out there. This will do nothing more than deepen divisions and further traumatize this country. If at any point through the conflict, as you took images, whether you thought actually it would be a good idea to self-censor. Well, yes, uh, there were times. And in fact, as a matter of fact, the policy of the, the AP, we don't put up very graphic picture. We wanted to put up pictures that would, that would serve the audience. So when we, take, uh, when we go to do photos and, and you have to take photos of, of bodies, you have to do it at an angle that, that will not affect the viewing audience. But this one was different. And for some reason, the editor decided he would put it out because it was just, it was just something that nobody could take. And when they talked to me, I couldn't talk on the phone, and they knew something was wrong. I said I had an image, and that's what I could do. I just did my caption, and I sent it because I was really touched. And it was just too much standing there and see people dying, and I had to take a picture. So I had to put it up because, again, the crowd was like, yes, and they kept bringing body to me, like, take a picture and put it up, take a picture and put it up. So it's like, you have to do something about it. So, I, I mean, I had to put it up. Um, Matt, Bill, Sai, I... Peewee was there on the ground and he was taking these images. You were, all three of you to a certain extent, at a distance. What do you think, looking back, what did the media miss with the story? Did they miss anything when you look back? At that point, I was actually um, in Abidjan waiting to get on a plane and arrive the next day. So I was part of the, the wave of journalists who came in. We had a correspondent there throughout, and we were rotating in and out. Um, and we had Liberian correspondents um, there throughout. So I kind of felt like we never went to sleep on the story. Um, yeah, I mean... Bill, do you think anything was... I, you know not trying to give ourselves a pat on the back, but I, I think that was one of the times. I remember the very day it happened, talking to our correspondent on the ground, and I remember how moved he was. Um, and um, he, the, the unfortunate thing was that um, he didn't have a camera crew at that time because um, they had been I think caught up in, in a crime. There was a debate on one of our cameramen uh, was so touched by what had been happening in, was so moved by what had been happening in Liberia that he refused to go back to Liberia. And so we were in the process of trying to get someone from Nairobi to send to Monrovia when this thing happened. And I remember talking to, to our correspondent on the ground and you could hear the emotion in his voice. And immediately we managed to get him on TV, I mean, by telephone. And he explained what was happening. I think a couple of hours, I remember those images coming in, you know, on AP. And we had to censor them, of course, because we couldn't show some of them. So to say that the international media missed anything, no. Because I think at that particular time, most of the journalists on the, on the ground were convinced that what was happening in Liberia should not have been happening and that what was happening in Liberia needed to be told. And they were doing everything within their power to bring the information to the international viewing audience. But, but it was more than that, wasn't it? I think it was also a sense that the crisis in Liberia was coming to a head that brought in 
that brought a, a lot of international attention because similar things had happened at different points of the war with, without the same kind of impact. And, and, and that's true. And, and the crisis in Iraq was coming to a head, and a few weeks later, yeah. But I think at that particular time, they were not sure what the end game would be. That's right. You know, yeah. because it would, it, the question was, will Lord overrun Monrovia and take over Monrovia, right. or will uh, the people who were meeting in Akasambu, you know, come to an agreement for an, for an interim government? So there was this debate as to what was going to happen, and you're right. And I think that's why journalists were flocking to Monrovia, because mm. they believed that, okay, there was an end game inside, but they didn't know what it was going to be. And another part of that was the question of whether U.S. Um, forces would land in Monrovia. Mm. Yes. And do you feel that the media... Sai, you wanted to add something before I go on? You know, and <clears throat> although we were not there, but they, uh, the images really had an impact on us. As a matter of fact, during that time, I lost my, my grandmother. She wandered until today, she has, she has no grave. Uh, and some of us who are here, who are taking a chance because we have relatives on the ground. My parents live at PHP. Uh, they were delayed. And one of the stories I told you other, just the other day was that uh, I, I had my wife who was on the side of Tiller Group. Uh, when I published something here, she would go and print it and take it to my my home and tell this is what your father doing and my son who and I have the same name uh, he's my junior he called me to tell me that said, so what are you doing you putting us in danger so I had to come up with a story to tell him I said just tell him your father he left from here since 1968 he's very hopeless he had not talked to us uh, he, so whatever you want to do you can do it my father said he doesn't care because he he's not communicating with us so I was able to diffuse that whole thing and to continue to publish what I, 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 I was uh, committed to publish. But they had a way of trying to intimidate your people. Whether you were in Liberia or, or outside Liberia, of Liberia. Or Liberia. Outside of Liberia yeah. And that shows the high price that journalists pay mm -hmm. to try to get news of a conflict oh, yeah. into the wider world. And in, in, in taking those risks, in the specific case of Liberia, what part do you feel, uh, again, to everyone up here, did the media play in bringing about peace, or was it just really one of those things that was just time, all the forces were spent and it, had, it came to a head? Now, you, I, 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 think, I think the media um, did have a part to play in ending the Liberian conflict, and you know, there may be some who will disagree with me, um, but I think, for example, um, we all know that when the U.S. speaks, the rest of the world yes. listens. Um, and I remember uh, when we got the interview with, with, with um, President Bush, we made a conscious decision that um, a good part of the interview was going to be about Liberia. So we got to the executive mansion, and during the interview, um, I think we spent, the interview was for about 10 minutes, and about five to six minutes was on Liberia. And President Bush insisted that Charles Taylor must go, Charles Taylor must go. And I think hearing that, and once it was played right away, uh, Mr. Taylor sent for our correspondent in Monrovia to react, and he said he will leave given one, two conditions, and he had softened his conditions by then, before he was saying that the, the war crime charges must be dropped. But when he spoke to our correspondent in Monrovia that day, he was not saying that. So he had softened his stand. So I, I think to a large extent, um, the inter because the international media, Reuters, AP, CNN, the BBC, um, brought the story to the international community. I think it created an awareness that something very wrong was happening on the ground in Monrovia. 
people began to pay attention to debate. I, I think the debate on what to do went on for too long. Mm -hmm. But I think in the end, um, what the images, the stories that were told out of Liberia helped. Um, those who decided on how to end the war, it really helped, I, I, I think, to bring the war to an end. Peely? Yeah. Um, I think and, and one of the frustrations I had during that time was during the course of the time when uh, President Bush made the statement of Taylor leaving Liberia and Taylor saying, you have to come in, I'm not leaving my people in the hands of the rebel. If you, if you do a calculation of, if you just look at the number of persons that died in the course of that one week, you are more than the, the, the three wars, I'm telling you, they were more than the three wars because then people were fighting now for total control, the final control, if I should put it. The, the, the lawyer were pushing very hard to cross the bridge, and Taylor was pushing very hard to push them back to keep them where they were. And then, in the meantime, the political game was going on, and people were dying. There were times that we, we could not just go out anymore because it was just too high. People could not find food anymore because it was just too high for them. And because talking about when uh, water journalists were thinking it was going to end tomorrow and so they were in flood, nobody knew when it was going to end. If, if, I mean, if you were in the field going on the war front, you hear from the guys they were preparing every day as if they were going to continue for the next 100 years. And that was the plan from the government side because we, we talked to government troops. And when, when they brought in the shipment of arms that I was caught at the airport by the the um, uh, echo mill troop, the troops that came from Sierra Leone to, to come in uh, and before the UN. And, and then this consignment of arms came in from somewhere and the junior officers decided they would not let it go because there was some foul place somewhere and somebody gave order that they should let it continue to go. And they said no and they were, they were fighting, I mean firing at the airport. And, and so the course of that one week, more people died. And then the story was, was not out in my, in my mind as it was happening that way, too. So there's the, almost a build-up of events that yes. basically led to that point where peace was somewhat, I won't say inevitable, but the road to peace was open. It was, it was open, and, and, and the troops, they had U.S. Marines, I don't know, about 1,500, they were sitting on the shore. People were coming up every day and sitting mm -hmm. at the show and seeing them, but they could not come on show. And Matt, just a question of um, the part journalists played. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to take... Because we're, we're going to wrap up, up here and throw it open to the, to the audience. Sure. Shortly. I'd like to take issue a little bit with what you said, Bill, even though I think you guys did a, a fantastic job during that period in Liberia, and I think you really did make a difference. I think it's easy to overestimate the um, role that journalists play in ending conflicts. Um, and I, I kind of, perhaps I do it myself because I'm in the business too, but I, I kind of feel like wars end for big, because of big factors over which journalists don't have that much control. And, um, you know, the role we play is largely as observers and eyewitnesses and, you know, the big forces which, which caused the Liberian conflict to come to an end. Um, yeah, I would say that they were pretty much, um, you know, beyond the, beyond the control of, of, of anything we were doing. Bill? Yeah. Um, let's... Take, for example, quickly. if Liberia had... It's good to disagree, though, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if Liberia had remained the, slaughter, the slaughterhouse it was, without the international community knowing what was happening, knowing who Charles Taylor was, and Charles Taylor felt comfortable that no one was knocking on his door, mm -hmm. 
to expose what he was doing. You think Charles Taylor would have left Liberia? No. The other thing is Darfur, for example. Uh, with all the atrocities that were happening in Darfur, no international media was reporting it. You think if that had remained um, one of the biggest secrets in the world, I, I know that the Darfur crisis still exists today, but the attention that's being paid to Darfur, if the international community, international media had not gone in there and said, look, this is what's happening, that attention would have not, um, um, I mean, Darfur would not have the attention it has today. But I don't want to overstate. Yeah. Well, I don't want to overstate our role. Please don't get me wrong. I don't want to overstate our role. But we have a powerful tool in our hands, and when we go out to do stories, we have to remember why we do stories. Are you just doing stories because you want to do stories, or you doing stories because you want to be a voice for the voiceless? And I think there are some international journalists who were on the ground in Monrovia who felt at that particular time, that's why they were doing these stories. And I think to some extent, it impacted what happened in Liberia. I'm not saying that the international community, the international media or Liberian media um, is totally responsible for peace, but I think the coverage had an impact. Sai, right. so, do you think the media I, in the diaspora had an impact in bringing about peace? Yeah, very, very, very much so. Uh, we were able to expose uh, the atrocity on the ground, for example. Had we not done that, the, um, the Americans and some of us who are citizens uh, wouldn't have uh, been able to, to know exactly what is happening. So we're able, we did other, other things besides publishing because uh, we had opportunity to go to our congressmen. We, uh, we had uh, demonstrations, like in Atlanta, for, for an uh, uh, example. Uh, we had to go to people who have power, who, who could bring about some changes. And, and, one, and one, 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 one other point. Uh, we felt that uh, the U.S. betrayed us for the fact that uh, we had a relationship. Had the U.S. gone there like uh, they did in Sierra Leone, we wouldn't have had all the atrocity that would go on. But as, as, as he mentioned earlier, they, they had Marines on, on the show. I don't know what they were uh, waiting for. Had it gone in, those people would have given up, but uh, they, they, uh, they opted not to do that because Liberia, to them, the Cold War was over and Liberia was insignificant and so forth. So. An interesting point that we'll try and pick up on when we open up the floor for questions. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it and get everyone else involved. But before we do that, I'd like to invite Commissioner Massa Washington to the stage. Um, she's with the Truth and Reconciliation uh, commission and she's going to give us her thoughts on how the media did and answer a few more questions for us. If you could welcome Commissioner Washington to the stage. And after that we will, we will take some questions. We're just going to get around the, uh, the miking issues. I think that should work. Commissioner Washington, thank you so much for joining us up here. Um, we spent about 50 minutes talking about various issues of how the media, uh, both domestic and international, covered the conflict. Uh, just give me a sense of what struck you in listening to that conversation. What stood out for you? Well, um, actually, the panelists have made some very salient points, uh, all of them. But uh, one thing that really stood out was the fact um, that Bill Burke emphasized that perhaps 
the carnage in Liberia would have continued long beyond the time um, it lasted if the international media had not in a way partnered with local journalists to actually tell the story to the world. I think it was very, very important because um, the constraints and challenges that local journalists were faced with in getting the stories out were just completely tremendous, like um, Piro Flomoko was stating. And because of all the um, extreme conditions under which journalists work, including the uh, constant harassment and intimidation of journalists, journalists were killed during the conflict. There were times where there we saw the skeletons or the skulls of quote-unquote people who should have been journalists in Liberia and other journalists were made to salute the skulls because they were the skulls of journalists. So imagine if the international media had not really partnered with local journalists in getting the story out. To jump in there, Charles Taylor had his own media outfit. He ran a radio station, he had relationships with, with print journalists. What impact did that have on the conflict as you listen to the hearings that have now started as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? I mean, obviously and naturally, it sent mixed signal to the, the outside world of what was really happening because now you have one group of journalists, and let's not forget that by nature of the profession, journalists are held in high esteem, and people see the media as one of the institutions of, um, of um, you know, being responsible of, of high integrity, including moral as well. So when you have a group of journalists who are telling the story from a different perspective, from a perspective of someone who's, um, who's paying them, you have a problem there. Then they send out the wrong message that one, all is well, that two, well, Mr. Taylor is not really the book man you think he is. And what was also interesting in that was that they kept playing up the factor of sovereignty. I remember all through the Liberian crisis, Mr. Taylor and um, the journalists who were reporting for him played up the issue of sovereignty so much to the extent where it actually, I think, delayed the uh, intervention of the international community. So when you have journalists taking sides like this to the extent where they become the propaganda arm of um, armed conflict, it's, it's a dangerous thing for, for, for ending the war. It's a dangerous thing for bringing relief to people and more specifically civilians who are usually the victims of such uh, conflicts. You talk about Charles Taylor being you know, the book man and... Um having his own propaganda outfit, how that mixed the signals that were going out. Do you think, and this is a question that I addressed to the panel earlier on, do you think the international community, do you think they asked the right questions of Charles Taylor when they had the opportunity? Um, it, what do you think of the coverage well, he received? I think sometimes I taught um, journalists or the international community or international journalists um, did well with some of the issues that they raised. Even in some of the interviews with him, some of them are very, very aggressive in the way they ask their questions, the kind of questions they ask. But then also, there was a bit of a variation when you met Mr. Taylor himself, 
it was different when you, when you listen to you interviewed him. Yes, I interviewed him as well. But it, it was different when you listen to, say, for example, the BBC, someone from the BBC interview him by telephone from Bush House. The, the questions and the, the, the tone of the interview is completely different as opposed to when you listen to um, an interview with Taylor in person. It was completely different. And I think the reason was that, like, like he stated, Mr. Taylor is extremely charming. He's, he's, he's educated, he's, um, he's, he's articulate, and he has a way of, of uh, sort of like um, wooing people. So you really have to understand the psychology of the person you are going to interview. You need to do your homework before you interview someone like Mr. Taylor. If not, you could be left with a different impression from what, you know, what was obtaining. So what I saw most of the time was that in a lot of cases, when people had to meet Mr. Taylor one-on-one, -on -one, the interview, the content, and the way it was reported to an extent was a little different from when they had to operate or interview from an independent um, standpoint in terms of location. It was also um, a little different. And I think it had to do with his uh, immense charisma. Um, the, the TRC hearings have started. They started in January of, of this year. Uh, you're hearing a lot of personal testimonies. You're hearing firsthand of the brutality that played out in Liberia. I wonder, having heard those stories personally, when you put it side by side with the coverage that happened during that time, whether you feel that the media did a good job of getting the story out and getting the right story out, the child soldiers, the violation of human rights, the, fem the women issue, uh, how, how did it compare now that you, you're hearing from people? I think the media generally did a fairly good job in, um, in telling the story. Um, perhaps in some other um, areas, more so than others. Like for example, Politically, the focus on the story. And then also, at a point in time, the focus shifted to the humanitarian crisis that was prevailing at the time. But then the issue of gender was not something then that was actually a focus, uh, a focal point. And I guess one of the reasons was that Liberia at the time um, was not very exposed to the issue of gender, gender-based violence, and, and, and what have you. So journalists reported generally what happened. If, if women were killed, children were killed, they reported generally on, on it. But there was no specific focus on, on the issue of, of, of violence against women or what was happening with women specifically or even children. They did, I think they did a fa fairly good job in reporting on child soldiers who were being recruited but I think the, um, the media did a far better job on the coverage and reporting on child soldiers when it came to the Sierra Leonean situation as opposed to, uh, to Liberia. I think it was the, 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 the manner in which and the degree in which the um, child soldier issue was reported from the perspective of Sierra Leone that actually Why brought back focus that to... Well, I think it was because of the dynamics of the conflict, this blood diamond thing, where people were hacking off the, the, the arms of, of children and, and all of that. So, but it, it worked out well for Liberia as well because it was easy to now say, well, 
similar thing was happening this is in the Liberia. Same yeah, this is the same problem. A final question, because we want to open it up to the floor. Um, now that the TRC is underway, how much space and prominence is it getting now in Liberia, in the media today? Well, it's, big, it's, it's getting a lot of prominence now since the hearings. And the reason being that um, the hearings, TRC hearings are usually dramatic and um, full of politicking and, and issues. I mean, those issues that people would normally tend to look for. And it can also be sensational in the media loss sensation, especially coming from a background of, of, of a civil war. A lot of the stories that are coming out in the TRC hearings has to do with gross human rights violation, like amputation, um, opening of pregnant women's stomach, the child soldiers, extreme sexual violations, rape of, of children as young as six and five years old. And these are all stories that have sensational proportions. And so the media is there every day covering the TRC hearings. And then another point to it is that the hearings, in the hearings, big names are coming out. And you know media, I mean, big names, big news. So when someone is, when a victim comes out and say, for example, this person who was the minister of XYZ was um, a party to the conflict or was actually a, a rebel commander who gave the order for the massacre to take place or whatsoever. That's big, that's big news. And uh, if a victim comes out and say, well, um, this person who is now, quote unquote, ambassador at large, was actually there when my brother was killed or this person killed my family. It is big news. So because of the names, the big names that are now coming up in the TRC hearings in terms of the uh, violations of human rights, so um, it has brought a lot of attention to the TRC and the media now is, is um, focusing a lot of attention on what is coming out of the hearings. I lied when I said it was the last question. I do have the last question now. <laughs> so, and uh, forgive me if I ask you to be brief. Um, now that the war is over, is the media in Liberia, given that we've heard from, from Peewee and Sai on the panel that have spoken to the divisions that existed, the partisan nature of the Liberian media at the time, has that changed? Is the Liberian media now speaking with one voice, giving voice to a representative of all parts of society? Is there a sense that it is now free, uh, impartial, independent? Yes, I think so. I think the media has uh, recovered rather quickly and um, um, miraculously. You have the press union of Liberia now. There is one press union of Liberia now, unlike during the, the, the time of the war. People wanted to have two group of you know, press corps in Banga and also Monrovia. Now you have one press union, um, you have one association, and um, now you just have just one group of journalists who will be articulating the concerns of, of members of the media. And also the, the press is now more independent. Uh, I think press freedom is, um, is much more improved as compared to even before the war and also during the days of the war, even um, during the days of Mr. Taylor. So I think the media has come a long way. And um, it's also doing a lot of work to address some of those issues that have plagued the media before. 
right, in terms of training for journalism and other issues. Commissioner Washington, thank you so much. And thank you to our panel as well, who joined us this evening. We can give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, it's time to hear from you. Simple process. You go up to the microphones. Please um, state your name and where you're from, and just give us, uh, try and keep the, the, com the questions a little, a little tight, shall we say. Um, the floor is open. Whoever would like to go first, please feel free. Good evening. I'm Tommy Johnson from Wingcom Limited News. Um, I have two questions. Do you have any first-hand evidence of local journalists dying in Liberia or their careers being destroyed? And what sort of security does your news agency supply to you, either personal security or professional security? Please feel free, whoever would like to take that one first. Peewee, any uh, first-hand evidence of journalists dying in Liberia during the conflict? Well, I, I don't know if it's a personal uh, evidence. If I, 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 I don't have physical evidence to show you, but I do know that I know about four or five journalists that died as a result of the war and in, in, in their duty reporting. Yeah, there's evidence if you check on the website. If you check on the PUL, uh, the Press Union of Liberia website, you see the names, the time the guys were killed. Sometimes they give you reason and, and why they were killed. Mm -hmm. Yes, they were killed uh, in the line of duty, reporting. Yeah, because somebody felt they were reporting something that they didn't like. Anyone else on the panel want to speak mm -hmm. to that? Just say something. Yes, um, like, like people stated, oh. there, there were a couple of journalists who who died, who lost their lives as a direct result of practicing their profession during the time of the conflict. I had the unfortunate experience. Um, I was made to salute this call of a senior uh, Liberian journalist who was actually one of my trainers um, on Dupo Road, uh, Mr. Taylor's territory. And uh, I was told, salute this call. This is the call of Tommy Raines, who was a broadcast journalist and um, said, this is a skull of one of your young men, um, one of your boss men. Salute the skull, and I had to salute the skull before I was allowed to pass. So yes, there are direct evidence of journalists being killed during the war. Um, Matt, to answer the second part of her question in terms of security. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that, is, is my mic working? You sound is loud it, to yeah, me. I think it's fair to say that um, over the course of the conflict in Liberia and over the course of other conflicts in Africa, um, security was increasingly taken seriously. Um, and you know, certainly I noticed that when I started covering Africa in about 1994, anything went and we took enormous risks and there was almost no thought about um, the consequences. Um, during the course of that you know, stretch of 10 years, um, I lost uh, eight friends uh, killed, but none of them in Liberia, um, some of them in Sierra Leone next door. But um, towards the end of that time, um, international news organizations started taking security much more seriously. So um, thinking much more carefully about which roads were safe to travel down and when it was safe and not safe to travel. Mm -hmm. Thinking much more carefully about um, what kind of stories we would even try to report and, and figuring out a kind of risk-benefit analysis in mm. individual places and thinking much more carefully about um, 
Um, first aid, which might sound basic, but it's really important. Communications, which might sound like it's not relevant to security, but actually it really is. And um, uh, even up to issues of, of body armor. Um, so, was it good enough? No. Um, but uh, I think it's fair to say that people tried to do better as time went on. Gregory, you wanted to speak to. Yeah, I just wanted to say something. Um, on the issue of journalists being killed in the war, I was suffered some torture in the war was that. I can recall uh, it was not only from the warring faction aspect, uh, because of the late John Vamo. He was a correspondent for the BBC, and he was reporting on most of the incident of Ecomot also. And most of his report, Ecomot did not like his report. So for that incident, he was tortured, beating, and for no tortures he went through, he ended up dying. He died after, I think, four or five months for most of the torture because they beat him from his back, his legs, his head. So we have a lot of journalists who also suffer torture. Only not for only the warring faction, but for also from the peacekeeper's hands who were there keeping peace. And the peacekeeper also was sanctioning press reporting of the independent press on the ground also. I just want to make it clear. Okay. Um, I just want to touch on the um, aspect of security for local journalists. I know when um, I was practicing and even now, there is no security mechanism that has been put together in a systematic way to address the security concerns and issues for local journalists. For example, if you cover a story in a territory of a war faction, it was completely on your own volition and also um, based on your love of your profession to bring the stories, I um, mean the story home to, to um, the people of Liberia and, and also the international community. There are no insurance, so if you died in the discharge of your duty, you, you just, your colleagues make collection and hopefully they can find a coffin to bury you in. There's no um, provision for what happens to, to your family. There's, there was no such thing during the war when we were reporting. There was no such thing as um, body armor or bulletproof vest or nothing like that. You just, you just did your job because it was your profession. You loved the profession and you needed to bring the story home. Thank you, Commissioner Washington. Another question. Elaine Alpert from Boston, Massachusetts. First, I want to thank uh, each and every one of you on the panel, not only for an outstanding uh, presentation, but also for your personal courage and integrity in, in unspeakably difficult times. And I think that I could probably speak for everybody in that. Um, I have two questions. One's short and one's a little bit more complicated. The short one is for Commissioner Washington. Um, clearly you are uh, the media covers the TRC hearings and procedures currently. But my question is, do you use any of the past media accounts, either photographic or recorded or print, as evidence or a, a, as supporting documentation for your 
uh, uh, for your procedures currently? That's the first question, and I'll wait for your answer, and then I'll ask the second. Excuse me, what was it? Whether we are whether you whether use uh, whether using Pee Wee's um, photos and Greg's photos? Yes, of course, of course, definitely. Um, as part of our, our, our fact finding and and recording what has happened, we're also looking at the stories that were reported and also images, including pictures and what have you. Um, with pictures, pictures don't lie. Pictures, images tell exactly what happened. So we, we have a lot of uh, images that we're collecting. We've been asking journalists, photojournalists who were in certain areas at certain time to assist us put together that uh, photo gallery. But with the issue of news reports, while it is true that we are using as point of reference news reports that came out during the conflict, we want to be careful we are going beyond what was reported then because we know that there were all of these different limitations and all of these challenges that tended to have hampered the, um, the, the work of, of a journalist at a time. Say for example, today we have the issue of the Carter Care massacre and 18 years after that massacre took place, we have a, a survivor now who came out last week and testified before the Truth Commission what really happened. But at the time the uh, massacre took place, a lot of newspapers that were uh, biased towards Mr. Taylor actually faulted, I mean that were biased towards the um, armed forces of Liberia, actually blamed the armed forces for committing atrocity. Now, 18 years after, a, a, a survivor of the massacre has come out to say that it was Mr. Taylor's NPFL that actually committed the massacre and adopted 40 of them into 45 miles into NPFL territory. So if we are just to take at face value reports that uh, uh, stories that were reported before and just use it as a basis of primary uh, 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 data or information to, inf to um, inform our work, we might be coming up at the end of the day with some analysis that may not actually be the truth. And the TRC work is actually a, a, a big a truth-seeking um, a, a, a project. So we need to be careful how we refer to our newspaper reports and all of that. But of course, we will use some of those reports once we can, we can verify and authenticate um, the, yeah, those stories. Because we have an inquiry unit that, that you know, is very active and is, um, is doing investigation. So, but we have to be careful with the news stories especially. Okay, let's take the Thank second you. question. The second question is, um, as in mental health, when people are exposed to trauma in their work, um, they themselves can be troubled by it, and that's called vicarious traumatization. And for all of you who've witnessed and been close to and have lost, and significant people in your lives and have had to be dispassionate and objective in your reporting at the same time. My question is how do you take care of yourselves? And I don't mean the security, the, the physical Kevlar, I mean emotionally. Who do you turn to? What are your resources? What do you do? Is, do you have things built in as journalists to connect with one another? Do you package it away and hope it doesn't come back? Um, and how big of a problem is this, especially since people's close friends and colleagues have been um, uh, tortured and, and killed? Bill, do you want to pick that up? Yeah. Um, 
whatever happened to some of us um, back in Liberia? Um, those are events that you can never forget. Um, Masa and I have been having a conversation since we've been here, and she's uh, been trying to convince me to go before uh, um, TRC had to give a statement or so, because my father was killed. Um, I lost my sister also. I lost my brother uh, and my grandmother. Um, the question is, how do I deal with that? Um, I, I think to an extent, for me, um, after leaving Liberia, I spent about nine months or so in Cote d'Ivoire. And what did it for me was coming to the U.S. and reuniting with my family. Yeah, my mother was here and other family members were here. And I, I, to a large extent, I think it was some therapy in a sense because we talked a lot. My mom was not in Liberia during the war. Uh, but other family members who were there, we talked a lot about what happened. And I think we reached out and became a support system for each other. And I think it becomes easier, you know, with years. And over the years, while we haven't forgotten what happened, I think to an extent I've healed. I didn't do any form of therapy. Uh, and I think it's important, too, that when we, you know, for example, meeting Gregory after how many years? I don't remember. Uh, you know, and just talking about some of our experiences together during the war, you know, I think those things help. You know, they serve at, you know, we, we serve as support for each other. Uh, formal therapy is not something that's common in our society. So uh, I, I'm not speaking for others, so I don't know if they've done it. But I do know a lot of friends who just sought the support of each other rather than going to some kind of therapist or so. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to bring Pien for that moment and bring you inside because you took that photo and witnessed piles and piles of dead bodies. Uh, and I, I, the impact it had on you, has the, the war left you traumatized in some way? Yeah, um, that was, the, like I said, the, the second time I felt I threw in my camera away. The, the second one was like uh, a shooting that took place, shell uh, landing in the school building. And there were two guys who were arguing in the morning to use the tickets up to see who would be the first to brush up. And they were arguing this, and then they went outside. And just in that time, the shell landed in the compound of the school building, and one of them died instantly. And then there was a, uh, a woman who just gave breath the, the night before, and she got hit, and she died, and the baby was... So we just got there on the scene with the shell landed, we went running in there. And I entered the hall, this guy, he came running to me and grabbed me like, he, he couldn't let me go because he like, I, I should have been the one to die because we were arguing on this and we went outside and now my friend is gone. Did you yeah. seek help after the Civil War to, to deal with what you saw? Um, no, but I, I mean, I went to, I went to church, I talked to the pastor and that day, what I did was I just cried out because I just couldn't stand it. I went back in the car, and my editor was like, okay, we need to go back to the hotel because he couldn't go anywhere without me. And I, I was just feeling down. And I just cried. And then after, I was like, okay, let's go. We, I think I can make it. He's like, no. So sometimes you talk to your codies, and they come and ask you, and they know you're a strong person, 
and something goes wrong, like, you know you can make an, all of you a whole hand and talk, just for that moment, but... Sorry, you wanted to Yeah, I wanted to say that. something about therapy. Therapy in the American sense or the European sense is not, we don't do that in Africa. Based, based, on, our, no, based on our extended family, okay? Mm -hmm. if, if, you're, if you're not raised by your father, mm -hmm. if you're raised by your aunt or your uncle, they serve the same purpose. Now, what we did in the United States, or like in the diaspora, we have community organizations. Now, when a problem, when you, one person has a problem, the community comes to your aid. They serve as a therapy. Now, when someone dies, like in your immediate family, in your family, and you're part of the community, the community come to your aid, and they, they take care of, they assist you with the bearer, even if you have insurance, they, they assist you with the bearer, they assist you with other things. This is why we emphasize in the community that we should become part of the community, and that uh, 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 helps a lot in in uh, 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 easing your 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 your, your trauma and all of these things here. And Matt, you, you lost friends, as you mentioned, not necessarily died in Liberia, but covering other conflicts. You've seen people die. How did you handle it? And did you did you seek help afterwards? Um, I think that um, journalists in conflict zones face a number of um, trauma issues. One, um, which I saw very frequently, was um, addiction to uh, alcohol. Um, and kind of denial that that was an issue. Um, two was um, a real difficulty forming and keeping relationships, which might sound like a weird effect, but it's like I can't relate to people who haven't been through what I've been through, therefore mm -hmm. relationships fail. A third one, which might sound very strange, is an addiction to conflict itself and to the adrenaline that you get from being in, in situations of danger. And so you get that phenomenon of going from you know, either war zone to war zone, that might be within one country, or I want to stay covering the story. Mm. And that in itself becomes, it's, it's, it's evidence of some sort of serious psychological imbalance. Um, in my case, I would kind of echo some of the things you said, that family, close friends, um, really help to restore over time mm -hmm. one sense of, of kind of spiritual balance. Mm. Is that an easy um, process? No, it isn't. And there's no guarantee, in my experience, that uh, you're going to come out the other side. You'll never be the same. No, you can never be the same. Well, you'll never be the same, no. But I, I would also say that I see real value in being a witness. Mm -hmm. And that is its own reward. I mean, I think, yeah, you feel haunted by some of the things you see. On the other hand, I'm glad I was there. Mm -hmm. You know, ten years later, I can look back and say, I'm glad I was there. Go ahead. Madam. Thank you. My name is Mabel Green, and my question is for Commissioner Washington. If I heard you correctly, I think you said you interviewed Mr. Taylor as a journalist. Is that correct? Okay. My question to you is this. Um, you interviewed Mr. Taylor as a journalist, and now you are commissioner on a TRSC where you are beginning to hear some of the atrocities that went on. Is there any time in your mind during these hearings where you wish that maybe some in the media could have done a better job in exposing some of what was going on in the country? Because now you've seen it both, you know, both sides. 
and especially now that you're on the inside. And my second question to you is, you talk about big names and big news. What is the TRC doing to bring some of these big names That's in the big house? <laughs> Are you all waiting for them to volunteer to come in? Are you going to subpoena them? Are you going to coax them? How, how are you going to get them in the big house? Okay, um, thank you very much. I'll take your last question first. Okay. The TRC process and uh, most of what we do, especially when it comes to statement taking, is confidential. So um, I will not sit here and, and say to you that all of them have given statements and who has given statements. But I can assure you that the quote-unquote big names or people of interest, majority of them have been coming to the TRC and they have given their statements. But equally so, what the public um, has not understood is that in the work of the TRC, we have processes and we have strategies for each process. And what we did when we started the public and in-camera hearings was to first focus on victims. TRCs are more victim-centered. Uh, the victims are the ones whose voices have been silenced for so long. They are the ones who've been abused. And they, they are the ones who have been left out for years and years. So the TRC hearings started by focusing on victims first. So we started with what we call victims' hearings. And um, after victims' hearings, we've been holding thematic hearings, like what happened to women, what happened to children, what happened to the elderly, what happened to our special needs community that we Liberians refer to as disabled community. So after we have heard from all of these different groups, then we started to engage the ex-combatant community is because most of them have voluntarily come to us and said they want to tell their stories. So we want to seize the moment because they may change their minds tomorrow. We've been hearing from all these different people. Now, we are approaching the point where we will now be holding the big hearings. And the big hearings will entail those names, those big names that everybody is waiting for. So it's not like they have refused to come or they directly do not want to participate or cooperate with the TRC. It's because we have not um, engage them yet in terms of giving them a schedule and formally writing them and inviting them to come for here and say XYZ time. But we have gotten the cooperation of uh, the over majority of these quote unquote big names. They've already been to the commission, they've given the statement. It's a process. First, you give your statement. After you give your statement, then we schedule you for hearings. Could be public, could be private. Now, the TRC Act says that we may hold in camera hearings based on one, whether the issue that will be discussed has to do with the security of the state. We want to make sure that we don't uh, jeopardize the peace and security that we now seem to enjoy. But then equally so, the TRC Act gives us the, um, the option to use our discretion as to whether to grant a particular person an in-camera hearing or not. But we haven't reached a stage where we are actually ready to call these quote-unquote big names, but we will do it in our July and August hearings. And, her first and your, your first question was, as a journalist, I interviewed Mr. Taylor, 
And do I think now, looking back and listening to the stories that journalists did well in articulating what was happening with what he was probably doing? Was that your question? Yeah. I would say, given the constraints and the limitations and the severe challenges that local journalists faced in executing their duty, I think they did the best they could under the circumstances. While it is true that it could have been a little different, while it is true that more light could have been um, um, shared on a lot of what happened, especially with the issue of women, now that women advocacy and, 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 and gender and all of this thing is now a big phenomenon in Liberia, we realized that there was not much done in terms of the coverage that women receive of how they suffer in the war, women and children. But generally, I think the, the local media actually did the best they could in terms of coverage of the conflict. We are rapidly running out of time, so I'm going to take these questions quickly. Go ahead, okay. sir. Uh, my question goes to um, Commissioner Master Washington, and my name is Robert Gagward. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the question number one, I got two questions, actually, quickly. Okay, if we could ask them uh, quickly, please, sir. <laughs> my question goes to the protocol. What is the protocol of the P TRC as it relates to uh, statement taking and or hearing? Uh, is it going from county to county, as we heard? Yes. And if so, my, I, I think the basis of my question, if so, what was the urgency of citing uh, people like Sonny Gardierboy, for example, when in fact the incident that he was involved in happened in Grand Bassa County? Okay, um, let me just say there was no urgency here for citing anybody. What we did was, when we launched the hearings, we selected cases that would be representative of the entire country, whether from Grand Bassa County, whether from Nimba County, whether from Bonnie County, whether from even Morovia. We selected cases on the basis of, one, it would be nationally reflective of what happened, the kinds of violations, and the different groups that were committing these um, violations. So you will see, if you follow the, the, the hearings closely, when we launched it in January in Monserrat, was that we, had, we heard statements from Grandbassa County, we heard statements from Kidmount County, we heard statements from Sino County, we heard statements from Riverside, we heard statements from Nimba County, we heard statements from all over, all over the country to launch the hearings. And then once we did that, then we now took time and went out into the different counties using, taking one week at a time to engage each county. What people don't seem to understand about the Diaboy issue and why we selected his case or as one of the cases, and because he, he came from Grand Bassa County, was that at the time we launched the national uh, the, uh, hearings, we were not looking at which county you came from or where you committed the violations. We were just looking at the category of violations. We were, look, we were looking at the geographic representation. We were looking at the faction. So every faction was represented. Mr. Diabo represents the NPFL of Liberia. He was a fighter with the NPFL. He was a commander at one point in the NPFL. He had men under his control. And the allegation is that he ordered his men to do some things, commit some atrocities against civilians. He was just one of those. We had um, 
the guy who was referred to as General Botnicki. He's from, um, from Grangida County. He testified. We had Swat Deble, who, who is a, a, a perpetrator. He's from Sino County. He testified. We have people from all over the country who testified. Okay. And hadn't I been his case first, we heard him first. It was just a matter of he could have been first. Hadn't I been him first, it would have been anybody first. So it was no particular reason that we heard his case first. If he had, had that been, it could be anybody else. But we needed to start the hearings. Right. And it so happened that he, his case was chosen to be the first okay. case. My, my last question, question, quickly. Because we're quickly running out of time, yes. Yeah, my, my last question, quickly. How do you explain to this audience uh, when the guy that uh, made the allegation comes back to you and say that you coaxed him in uh, implicating Mr. Dearborn? Well, you personally was involved in uh, making him do that. Well, everybody treated his, his previous statement. How, how do you explain that? Well, as a commissioner, the explanation is simple it's bogus. That's why I'm not sweating. The commission is not sweating. We continue to remain focused and we're doing our job. Because, in the first place, it is not possible that me or any commissioner of the TRC would have bribed any witness to lie on anybody in the first place. The particular statement, the particular Diabol case, when the statement was taken, in October, I was here in the United States training statement takers from state to state. I was in New York, I was in uh, Philadelphia at one point, I was in Minnesota at one point when the statement on Mr. Diabol was being collected. I don't do statement taking. I only got involved in the Diabol case when the statements came up to commissioners as we were selecting statements to be heard. So it's not possible, it's bogus. That's why no one takes it seriously. Okay, then we must leave it. Um, I've got two minutes, I'll take two questions. Chad Carlson, WABE. To what extent did you all feel manipulated by the various factions? And in such an environment, how did you get the facts straight? Matt? Quick answer. Um, the, uh, it's really striking how little respect authorities in conflicts have for journalists. They see journalists as pawns. They see them as being useful. Or they see them as being um, threatening and to be treated with suspicion, disdain, or worse. So it's a constant battle to avoid being manipulated. Bill? And I think you just have to be aware of it. You have to be aware um, that once you get on the ground, people will try to take advantage, people will try to use you. And, and we've all said here that Charles Tiller was the master at that game. So you have, you have to be aware of it, and, and I think to a large extent, a lot of the guys that I dealt with um, both from CNN and, and other correspondents on the ground, all the reporters on the ground, were very aware of that. Um, and because of that, they made sure to take the necessary precautions uh, not to um, unwillingly sell a, a particular faction like the NPFL or any other faction. Sai? I think he's, he has he's addressed it. it. Right. Huey, do you want to add anything about how you avoid being manipulated? Well, it, it was hard for, for uh, local journalists, uh, particularly because uh, they, they lack the resources. Say, for example, if Taylor wanted to take you to his farm or to his territory to see what was happening, he had to provide the transportation, he had to provide the housing, he had to provide everything for the local journalists to the extent that they give people by them to go, to go cover stories. So in that case, you, you want to be like, okay, this guy has provided everything. So what do How I do? do? And it was not only Taylor, it was, I mean, other people did it. So for local journalists, and I'm, I must uh, also clarify that it's not only uh, 
local journalists. I think some uh, international players were, were also manipulated because the way they reported the story, the, the way they were favored when we went for interview, we knew that something was going wrong. So to the large extent, players there manipulated somebody depending on the strength of that person. But of course, some people resisted and yeah. Thank you. Last question. Good evening, my name is Wieta Freeman. I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia. My question is to sort of complicate the notion of uh, uh, objective Western media. Uh, we know that objectivity is a value system in the Western media, but uh, Western corporate media has a perspective and agenda. And I'm wondering how that impacts you as international journalists in covering Liberia particularly, but Africa in general. Matt? Um, I guess I'd take issue with the question to an extent. I, um, the, to speak personally, the agenda that I was brought to a story was to try to figure out what was going on and to question what I was seeing and to try to report it as accurately as I can, as I could. Um, objectivity is a constant struggle. Um, do you always get it right? Did I always get it right? Do we always get it right? No. Were the constraints in place? For sure. Um, you do your best. I think it's valuable. It's imperfect. Um, you try to be as neutral as possible. If I may um, add, um, and it's unfortunate that this question is just coming, um, because I'm one person who um, often ask the question, what is objectivity? I think, and, and maybe some of my colleagues here may take issue with that, but I think every media house has an agenda. Every media house has an agenda. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember being young and very idealistic and believing in objectivity in the media. But I've been in journalism since I left high school in 1984. And I've come to realize that there's nothing um, call objectivity in journalism. Um, and like I said, my colleagues may disagree with me, but I agree with what Matt said. What you have to try to do is to be fair. To be fair in the story you're reporting. Make sure, number one, um, that you're factual. Number two, make sure that you're presenting all sides. You have to be fair. And why do I say that there's nothing like objectivity in the media? For example, um, there was a time where there were only a few people, let's take Liberia for an, for an example, only a few international journalists were paying attention to the situation in Liberia until the United States spoke. And then all the Western journalists started running to Monrovia. So, and I always make the argument to my colleagues here in the U.S. that the U.S. government and Western governments set the agenda for the media in this country and in the West. You know, they don't tell you this is a story you should report. But when they decide this is a policy issue, for example, when US forces went to Somalia, then the Somali conflict became a big international news. So please, forgive me, but I don't believe there's anything like objectivity in, in journalism. On that thought-provoking thought note, there we must leave it. Um, we're way over time, but I hope you think it was well worth it. It was an excellent panel. Um, I hope you'll join me in thanking them all for their time this evening. And, um, and thank you to you all for your questions and for joining us here tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Many thanks.
This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.